the 60s AD, the Apostle Paul was under house arrest in Rome. This was his first Roman imprisonment as described in the final chapters of the book of Acts. Being under house arrest, he was allowed visitors. And by a set of unusual circumstances that no doubt God directed, he was visited by a slave from Colossae who belonged to a fellow believer. Paul had probably met him there while on one of his evangelistic journeys. It's estimated that at the time in Rome, about half the population was slave. In Athens, about three-quarters. But this one slave presented Paul with a conundrum. More than likely, this seemingly chance meeting produced a redeemed relationship between Christians that serves as a model for us today as the true meaning of forgiveness. Today, we're going to explore this process together. This split sermon will illustrate the need for a redeemed relationship by citing a story from our New Testament. It's contained in Paul's shortest epistle, Philemon. Its contents are closer to the size of a postcard than of a letter, being only 334 words in Greek, about 490 words in our New King James. So this split sermon is the next in a biographical series I've been giving over the past few years here. And this one is on a special relationship between three men, Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. And the title of the sermon is Paul's Promissory Postcard. The book of Philemon is one of four epistles that Paul wrote under this house arrest in Rome during his first imprisonment. Collectively, they're called the prison epistles. And the epistle to, the, to Philemon seems to have been written about the same time as his epistle to the church at Colossae. When you look at the order of the books in our New Testament, you'll see that Philemon does not appear with the other three. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. It actually appears before the book of Hebrews. But it comes from that same set, and same time period. The story concerns a slave named Onesimus, who had run away from his master named Philemon. And most likely he ran away, not because he'd been mistreated by his master, but because he had done something wrong. Maybe stole property, maybe stole money, but he at least stole his time away from his master and he fled to Rome. Punishments for such actions were at the sole discretion of the slave owner, but they included branding, maiming, burning, even death. It could be very severe. And Onesimus ran to the populous city as many runaways did of Rome, this common destination for slaves on the run. He could no longer participate in the Roman economy, and so he had his own dilemma to deal with. This epistle contains no systematic presentation of doctrine, except, as we'll see, perhaps the doctrine of forgiveness, 
Rather, its avowed purpose is personal. It's written to a fellow Christian. It's Paul's only individual letter in our canon of a private nature, even though he greets the entire church, as we will see later. It's kind of like 3 John, where John addresses Gaius the Beloved. And the letter is entirely positive. There are no rebukes, no complaining, no mention of conflict, no mention of heresy, no problems in the church that he names, no warnings against false ministers, entirely positive. And it's very warm and personal, filled with emotion concerning a problem between two of Paul's friends. And this letter is a model of how godly, mature believers ought to relate to each other, one that's refreshing and uplifting. Paul writes this epistle with affectionate tactfulness. The first three verses are a salutation. Then he commends Philemon, verses 4 to 7. And then in verses 8 to 20, he gives an appeal on behalf of this runaway slave. And then he closes the book in verses 21 to 25. So let's go to the book of Philemon. This is going to be our home base. You may want to put a marker in there. And you'll find the book just before Hebrews. It's a small book, as I said. So let's turn to Philemon and begin our study. Philemon. There's just the one chapter, so we can say chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Appia, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the salutation, very common in Paul's style in his epistles. Who wrote the epistle? Well, the first word tells us. And yet people have contended over some of Paul's epistles, but this one has virtually no uh, conflict. The internal evidence is very strong. The vocabulary and style matches Paul's other epistles. As far as external evidence, men from the 2nd and 3rd century all attested Paul's authorship. But he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. This was his badge of honor, his official badge of office, that he, like John, banished to the island of Patmos before he wrote the book of Revelation, was being persecuted and was being jailed because of his faith in Christ, because of his ministry throughout the Greco-Roman world. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he names Timothy, who was associated with Paul on some of his journeys, He even named over in the book of Colossians, which I said is about the same time period, Philemon. It's interesting that Paul has a play on words with these three names, Philemon, Apphia, or Apphia, and Archippus. Uh, For example, Philemon means affectionate one, or beloved. And what does he call Philemon? Our beloved friend. So you, you miss this sometimes Because we read in English, we read a translation, but it's there in the Greek, these plays on word, and that will come into our story again a little bit later. So we'll watch for that. Philemon was probably a convert of Paul's, 
on one of his journeys uh, to that area. Uh, maybe when he was, had that extended stay in Ephesus, because from Ephesus, his ministry extended all through that part of western Turkey as we know it today. And in verse 1, he calls him a fellow laborer. It seems that they had worked together at some point, that Philemon had actually cooperated with Paul on some of his journeys and work, uh, maybe even as a minister. But he was a zealous worker. He's a wealthy man. What evidence do we have for that? Well, for one thing, in verse 3, the church, verse 2, rather, the church met at his house. So he has a house large enough to contain the entire church. And then he owned slaves. At least one of them, Onesimus, had run away from him. And he has a room to lodge Paul, which we'll see at the end of the letter. So a wealthy man, but he's also very loving and hospitable, as we'll see in verses 5 to 7. He is our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Just when he and Paul had worked together, Paul doesn't say, but Philemon certainly knew. And now verse 2. Apphia, to the beloved Apphia, or Apphia. Tradition says she's the wife of Philemon. This is a Phrygian name. Phrygia was part of uh, Western Turkey, as we call it today. She's one of those outstanding women who served in God's early church. Christianity, contrary to the opinions of some today, actually emancipated women from the mistreatment that they endured in pagan societies all around them at that time and even long before. And Paul here grants her this status, this social equality, by naming her along with these other uh, outstanding leaders of the church. In Archippus, some thought that this was their son, but more likely he was a church leader, maybe even the pastor of the church, but some official, it seems, to be in the church. And then he mentions he also greets the church in your house. So it's a letter that, in time at least, was to have been read to the entire congregation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's typical greeting that appears in many of his epistles, grace and peace. And what he has done is taken two words that had significance to two ethnic groups in the church. Grace for the Greek world and the Greek members, those who spoke Greek or came from Greek culture, and peace, which had to do more with the Jewish background, the Jewish brethren. And he greets them both in this common phrase, grace and peace be unto you. Grace, this tranquil state that we have, and peace with God, this undeserved favor. That word grace appears 110 times in Paul's epistles. It's a very common word. And then teamed up here with peace as it is, the, uh, that there's nothing that we have a relationship with God where nothing is being held against us. We're at peace with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. So this is Paul's usual salutation. We're in a right relationship with God. So it's very important to notice that right at the beginning. He's talking about our new standing before God before he goes on to make a very special request. Verse 4. Here he talks to Philemon personally. Before he asks a favor, he wants to greet him appropriately. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your faith 
and love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. Paul thanked his fellow workers constantly and thought of them in his prayers. And he often gives thanks to God for the people he's writing to in his epistles. He was concerned about them. This man is a dear friend. And Paul says, I want you to know that I care about you. I thank God for you and I commend you before he wants to ask Philemon a favor. So this offer of thanksgiving was customary in many of Paul's epistles. And then in verse 5 he says, He had heard of Philemon's love and faith. Now who did he hear that from? Well, maybe another church leader, Epaphras, may have been the pastor or another minister serving. Or maybe even from Onesimus, this runaway slave who had told him what a kind man Philemon was. We don't know, but Paul had heard, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. So in accord with what John the Apostle writes in his first epistle, faith and love go together. Faith in Christ, John wrote, and love for the saints. These things must go together. Faith and works. As John wrote, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. John, the so-called apostle of love, stressed that so much in his writings. So what he's doing here is praising Philemon. With a tr- he's got this track record of faithfulness in his service to Christ. And this is integral to what he's about to do to encourage Philemon to continue that faithfulness and generosity towards the saints. He's setting the stage for a request. Now in verse 5, he uses the word saints, the last word. And that word has from a root, comes from a root meaning set apart. God's people are set apart from the world. And they form an ecclesia, a group of called out ones. God has separated us from the world by giving us his Holy Spirit. So he's reminding Philemon of a special relationship that we have, so to speak, in-house, in God's church itself. That's not common with the world. God demarcated his people. And now verse 6. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. This word sharing in the King James is communication has to do with fellowship. It's that which we share spiritually among ourselves. What is it that is common to all truly converted Christians? It is that Holy Spirit. And it binds us together. That's what is the root of our fellowship. And yet that fellowship expresses itself in practical ways because that same word was used of the collection of money that Paul and his helpers collected to take to suffering saints in Judea in a time of of deprivation. Same word. It was expressed in a very practical way. And so it confirms what Paul wrote in Hebrews. But do not forget to do good and to share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So, in other words, Philemon has been generous to the brethren. 
He has shown true fellowship, hosting a church in his home, picking up, no doubt, good share of the cost each week with your snacks and whatever, maybe helping brethren who are going through difficult times. He's an outstanding man. And now verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Brother. You know, he was not afraid to refer to a fellow believer as brother or sister. We have a gentleman in our office who commonly refers to his colleagues in the office as, Hello, brother, we would hear as we see him in the hallway. That's what Paul did here. So we have, verse 7, we have great joy. The aorist tense in the Greek forcibly expresses that moment of joy when Paul got this good news of what Philemon was doing for that congregation. In our hearts, these innermost parts of the human person, that you have refreshed, verse 7, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. And the way that's expressed in the Greek implies that whatever the situation was, Philemon had come to the rescue to ease the pain, to ease the suffering of what their brethren faced. Terror, grief, despondency. Philemon is always there. He's picking their brethren up that has reached into their hearts, their innermost parts. He has refreshed them. He has given them some temporary sense of relaxation of mind. In other words, Philemon had staved off some kind of a crisis. And that's why Paul is so joyful, because he knows what kind of man he is. So he's commending him. He knows what's been going on back there in that congregation. And now verse 8. Therefore, and as I often say, when you see a therefore, what do you ask? What is it there for? You see, kind of bringing to a conclusion, everything that's come preceding is leading up to this point. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Though I could command you. What's he talking about here? He says, I could be bold to command you, to enjoin you. Paul is an apostle. And he has the power to give a direct order to Philemon to do something on his behalf. But he chooses not to. He chooses not to exercise his ultimate authority. He says, rather, I appeal to you. He turns to Christian persuasion to appeal to Philemon's heart over a particular troublesome issue and to do that which is fitting in verse 8, to do what is right. He is giving Philemon a chance to keep up his good reputation of love and faith, faith in Christ and love towards the brethren. And so in verse 9, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, 
and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul the aged. Some render that. Some translations have it as ambassador. Reason being, ambassadors were usually aged men. And in the one commentator that I read said the word ambassador was used in the Greek Orient for expressing the title of uh, legatus, legatus, the legate of the emperor, an ambassador of the Roman Republic who was appointed by the Senate for a mission, a legatio, or for ambassadors who came to Rome from other countries. And if that's the case, then what he has done in the Greek mind has the same force as the word apostle. And just to wrap all these into another alliteration, Paul was the aged ambassador apostle. It's the intent of Paul's statement to increase the import. Which he has a right to command because he is Christ's ambassador, but instead he exhorts Philemon, and he's throwing so much more responsibility back onto Philemon to do the right thing. Paul the aged, this is now about 28 years following the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. Paul is now in his late 50s, early 60s, very likely. He is Paul the aged, and as you read his epistles, how much he had suffered, how far he had traveled, and his travels are not over yet. This is just his first Roman imprisonment. Much more is yet to come. Paul the ambassador, Paul the aged, Verse 10, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Remember I mentioned the word play earlier? Here's another one. Onesimus has the sense of profitable. But had he been profitable to his master of late? No, he says in verse 11, who once was unprofitable to you. If you don't realize these word plays are there, you can miss it. And so Onesimus actually means profitable, useful, or beneficial. But he's not acting very profitably towards his master Philemon. His name, Onesimus, is another Phrygian name. And for some reason, Phrygian slaves were regarded with contempt in common society. The name was very commonly given to slaves and freedmen, uh, as we see in inscriptions. But Paul calls him, my son. I appeal to you for my son. And there were others that Paul called my son. And what he's talking about is a special spiritual relationship that he has with with these individuals because God had used Paul to bring about a conversion in these men. And so Paul acted as a father on behalf of these men as they were coming into conversion. And he says, whom I have begotten while in my chains. It's interesting that the Jewish Mishnah said, if one teaches the son of his neighbor the law, the scripture reckons the same as though he had begotten him. So Paul had taught Philemon the law, the teachings of Christ, the entire word of God, and as a result, he had begotten him in that sense. So I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, while in prison, 
somehow Onesimus came to see Paul under house arrest because Paul could have visitors, as the end of the book of Acts explains to us. And it seems that God directed Onesimus to visit Paul in Rome. How did he know him? Well, perhaps he had heard Paul preach when Paul went through Colossae. Perhaps burdened by this guilty conscience, he seeks out someone that he knows in the city. And it's Paul who's going to be used by God to bring this man to repentance and baptism and conversion. But now Paul has a dilemma. What does he do with this runaway slave? What does he do with a runaway slave of a fellow believer in Colossae named Philemon, who is a leader of a church? See, slavery was very much part of the Greco-Roman culture at that time. And there was confession of sin, and there was restitution that Onesimus owed Philemon. How was he going to handle this, the Apostle Paul? Onesimus, no doubt, shrinks from returning to his master unless he has a document vouching for his change of heart. Because runaways sometimes went to an intercessor to appeal on their behalf. And that's maybe what Onesimus has done here to Paul. And so Paul writes Onesimus a letter of reference to explain what a changed man he is with a personal appeal to Philemon to forgive him. And brethren, that's what you're reading right now. That's what this book is. It is a letter of reference and an appeal from Paul to Philemon on behalf of his new son, spiritual son, Onesimus, to forgive him and maybe even go a step further, as we'll see. Now, Paul has come to rely upon Onesimus while he is in under arrest because in verse 11... He says, who once was unprofitable to you, but is now, but now is profitable to you and to me. Onesimus is doing something to help Paul. He's providing him things. He's doing errands for him. He's visiting him, encouraging him. So Paul has come to rely upon this new son in the faith, so to speak. And it's going to be hard for him to let him go. But he's willing to make this sacrifice. And so, verse 11, Onesimus was unprofitable to Philemon, but now he is somehow profitable to both Philemon and Paul. How? Onesimus means profitable because he's a changed man. Verse 12, Paul says, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart. Talk about emotion. Paul says, I'm sending you back, my beloved son. It's the right thing to do. You're his master. I'm letting him go. As much as I need him, he will now become profitable again to you, like he has been profitable to me here in Rome. 
I'm sending him back. And Paul will send Onesimus back with a fellow traveler named Tychicus. As we read in Colossians chapter 4. For one reason, that would give Onesimus some protection from professional slave catchers who offered a reward to those who provided important information leading to the capture of runaway slaves. And so Tychicus may have delivered the letters to the churches at Laodicea and Colossae, and Onesimus personally presents himself to Philemon with this letter, or maybe Tychicus presents Onesimus and the letter to Philemon together. We don't know. But they travel back together. You therefore, Paul appeals to him, receive him as you would receive me, my own heart. Now when you get such an appeal from somebody, how could you say no? When somebody's pulling on your heartstrings that firmly, how could you say no? And this is the strategy Paul is using that he has as an ambassador, an apostle, but he is putting the responsibility on Philemon. He's not ordering him to do anything, but he's appealing to him to do the right thing and to be generous for what could be a life-threatening situation for Onesimus. And so verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. As Onesimus was Philemon's slave, any work that he did went to the credit of his master. And so Paul is saying, Philemon, your slave Onesimus has worked on your behalf, and I thank you that that he has done this in your stead. He has ministered to me in my chains for the gospel. Whatever physical needs Paul had, Onesimus was taking care of it. But Paul says, verse 14, without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntary. Paul does the right thing. He knows that this man must go back. He must deal with his master, though it's going to be on very different terms now. It's going to be a sacrifice to Paul because he's come to depend on him. Verse 15, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. And in my Bible, I've circled that verse with a red ink. That's a key verse of the whole story. Look at the word departed. As a masterpiece, this book, this book is a masterpiece just simply as literature because there are other Similar documents of the time of Pliny the Younger and Horace, but they come nowhere near to the beauty of this magnificent letter. If it was simply a letter, but it's much more than that, of course, now. But he says in verse 15, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. When Paul is trying to understand what God is doing, he adds the word perhaps. He's not going to be dogmatic. There are times we do not know God's intent. And so we stand back and we watch. And so he's very humble this way by saying perhaps. But look at the word departed. 
The word, some translators think it has more of the sense of separated. Yes, Philemon departed. He ran away. But through this, God is able to work a separation that brings Onesimus to conversion. That he too is going to become and has become one of the saints, one of the set-apart ones. So even through situations like this that are bad and wrong, God can work because God is God. By his grace, he works wonders, even through the infirmities of the flesh and wrongdoing and sin. God is not mocked. And so we have a marvelous new situation being presented to Philemon. The notion here is not that Onesimus is going to come back and be a slave of Philemon eternally, but that their new relationship as brothers transcends the societal structures of that time. The occasion of Onesimus' flight to Rome would be a catalyst to the formation of a new and better and stronger relationship, a redeemed relationship. 16, receive him back. You receive him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And look at those last three words. He is saying Onesimus now is ready to, to work for God, to be involved in the work in some fashion. Not only to serve Philemon, but to serve in the church. However God intended for him to serve. And this is going to put Philemon in a difficult position. Think about this. He's a slave owner. He's a Christian. As I said, this went on in the early century of the church. My friend and colleague, Mr. Nathan, read portion of Colossians today, which set the stage very well for this sermon, in which he talked to the masters to be kind to their slaves, their servants. It did go on at that time. More on this later. But it puts Philemon in a difficult position because with other local slave owners, if he does nothing to punish Onesimus, it sets a bad precedent. It's a dilemma now for Philemon. He and Onesimus have to figure out a way to express their love in a culture that looked upon slaves in a very different light from freed men. Philemon had lost a worker. He had lost money while he had been away from him. But now Paul asked Onesimus to be profitable both to his master and to God's work. The word for slave, doulos, here is the right sense of what's going on here, that Aristotle called such people the living tools of the master. That's the way he portrayed it. They were property in every sense of the word. And this understanding heightens the tense scenario that's being portrayed here. It was a true dilemma. And undoubtedly, Paul has asked this runaway slave to return to what could be a potentially severe and even life-endangering situation. If things went bad, it could threaten Onesimus' life. 
But no longer would Onesimus be a slave in the world's way of defining a term. Now, Paul writes, he appeals to Philemon to accept him back as a beloved brother in the faith, altered because of the conversion of this man Onesimus. And so he's asking Philemon to accept Onesimus as a spiritual equal in the church. This was radical thinking. A radical transformation of thinking for the time. I'm sure in our free society we have no comprehension of how deep an issue this was for these men. Paul has given Philemon the chance to refuse his request. He could easily say, no, I won't. Paul makes no compulsion, but he expects a positive outcome because of the kind of man that Philemon is. Just a few words on slavery. I don't have time in this split sermon to go into a lot of the history of the times, but here are a few thoughts. Our problem in reading a book of Philemon is to not read with the historical understanding of what occurred in this country with regards to slavery. Slavery was not so much a racial issue as a social class issue in the Roman world. We have to read this in the light of a former rabbinical student, Paul, who was dealing with Philemon of a Greco-Roman culture in the time of Pax Romana. But Paul's a Hebrew. The Hebrew Bible flowed in his veins. And the law permitted servitude with humane restrictions in the Hebrew Bible because Israel was a covenant people. And there were Israelite servants who became, in effect, members of the owner's family. For example, servants were given off the Sabbath, as you read in Exodus 20. Given the Sabbath off. And these servants had certain social and religious rights. A Hebrew slave or indentured servant could be kept no more than six years unless he wished it. In some cases, because of the conditions of society, some servants were better off in servitude than being free. And so if they had a good relationship with a master, the law permitted them to become permanent servants. And they went through a ceremony of piercing their ear to signify they would serve that master the rest of their lives because they loved that master and they had a good life. That's what the law permitted. Now the Hebrews, the Israelite peoples also owed owned Gentile slaves at times. But that was strictly limited by the law as well. But there was a law that if a slave escaped, he was not to be delivered back to his master. Now later interpreters, Jewish interpreters said that concerned only Slaves are ran from countries apart from Israel to Israel. But here is a situation quite different. Paul has convinced Onesimus to return voluntarily, to go back to his master, because now they are spiritual brothers. It was only right that Onesimus did something to compensate his master. Philemon, for the time he was unavailable for work based on rabbinical teaching, owed something to Philemon. The time that Onesimus was apart from his master, he owed owed him something. So he had to repay it. But Paul, instead, as we will see in a few minutes, 
offers to pay for it instead. The Roman system was very different from the Hebrew. Not all slaves lived in abject conditions. Some were doctors, philosophers, tutors, government officials. And though it could be harsh, Roman law did have custom for the freeing of slaves. Slaves could even purchase their way out of slavery. And when they did, they gained Roman citizenship, a very prized possession in that time. So here is Rome, a city of a million and a half people. It was a haven for displaced persons like Onesimus who ran there. And Paul's attitude towards slavery has to be understood in the light of his Jewish background, now ministering in a Greco-Roman culture. But when the church puts slaves and masters on equal footing, it revolutionized the social standing, at least in the church. And slavery was doomed, at least in the church. So verse 17, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. Again, how would you say no to that if you're Philemon? But if he has wronged you or owes anything, verse 18, put that on my account. Paul does not ask Philemon to cancel the debt, but instead transfer it to Paul's account. And Paul says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. There were times he would use a secretary to write, but he says, this time I'm writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. <laughs> now, that is clever. In effect, Paul is speaking to himself saying, not to mention you owe me. You know, that's the way we would say it today. Now, if you were Philemon, how would you respond to that kind of a request? This is why I call this sermon Paul's Promissory Postcard. Paul promised to pay the debt off one way or another. If he had to, I think he would have done it by labor, but at least by finances. So he speaks to himself, not to mention you owe me. Well, Philemon owed his spiritual life to Paul. And not only that, he owes Paul for the fact that he's sending back his runaway slave. So he's indebted to Paul. So that's why this sermon is about a relationship of three men, Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. You know what that word in verse 20, let me have joy is? Another way to render it? Again, is profit. Let me have profit from you. Onesimus means profitable. And now, let me have profit, Philemon, from you. Play on words. Beautiful. Play on words. To the meaning of the name Onesimus. Refresh my heart in the Lord. And he's writing this not only to Philemon, but to all those believers back in verse 2 in that church who would read it. 
But he says, remember Philemon, he, he had just commended him for refreshing the hearts of the saints, and now he asked Philemon to fre- refresh his heart. Verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you, do not, that you will do even more than I say. I know you will go above and beyond. Paul seems to be hinting about Philemon's emancipating Onesimus. Go above and beyond. Yet he never directly says so. Slavery was not directly attacked by Paul in this letter. Rather, Paul laid down principles inculcated in Christianity that would prove fatal to the institution, at least in the church. It's interesting that an inscription in Laodicea near Colossae was dedicated by a slave to a master who freed him. The master's name, Marcus Cestius Philemon. Was it the same man? We can't be sure. We don't know. But it's an intriguing possibility. Verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Paul was calling on the church to pray for his release. And he says, I hope that you will give me a lodging. Apparently, he and Philemon had planned another evangelistic trip together. And so when Paul got out of prison, went back to Colossae, they would travel together and reach more of that area. This letter to Philemon is delivered at the same time as Ephesians and Colossians. Near the end of his first imprisonment, around A.D. 62. 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greet you. Epaphras, perhaps short for Epaphroditus, one of the leaders in the church of Colossae, apparently. And then he goes on to name others. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Marcus is our John Mark of our gospel according to Mark. Aristarchus had traveled with Paul on his way to Rome. They're both Jewish Christians. And then we have Demas, perhaps short for Demetrius, who abandons the faith according to 2 Timothy, if it's the same man. We don't know for sure. And then Luke, the beloved physician, author of our gospel according to Luke. And these two names, Demas and Luke, are Gentile Christians. Again, the church is made up of these two ethnic communities in love and faith. 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is Paul's constant benediction. He ends on grace, just like he started the epistle in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what can we gain from this short postcard of an epistle. For one thing, Paul did not order Philemon to forgive Onesimus, but he appealed to him with Christian persuasion. He could have directly employed his apostolic authority. Instead, he used the appeal of love, brotherly love. He speaks as a friend to a friend, showing great courtesy, and he trusts that Philemon will do the right thing. But he didn't tell him what to do. He only gives hints. The second thing, it may be that Paul considered this a reenactment of the famous parable from the Gospels. Do you remember another runaway 
who went back and wondered how he'd be received. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? Maybe Paul is thinking of that story when he writes this letter. Giving Philemon a chance to be the forgiving, offended father of the prodigal son. Philemon's response is not specifically recorded. But I think we can safely assume it was positive. Otherwise, why would this book have become part of our New Testament canon? I can't imagine Philemon would have said no. And my guess is he set Onesimus free. Another thing, this letter was to be read to the whole church in time. Verse 2 mentions them. So it became a model for all master-slave relationships in God's church. Philemon was not the only slave owner in the church. As Mr. Nathan read for us, he, he laid down guidelines to deal with this very delicate situation. Another lesson is that Christianity did not rashly and violently interfere with existing institutions like slavery at the time. Rather, it laid down principles that brought about its gradual end. Let me read this from the Master Study Bible. Quote, By this one brief letter, Paul did more to loosen the shackles from the millions of slaves in the world than anyone has done. What an outstanding combination of this letter. Letter. You see, cultural change begins in the heart, one person at a time. Merrill C. Tenney, in his book, New Testament Survey, points out that all the elements of forgiveness are in this one letter. Look at them. The offense, compassion, intercession, substitution, restoration of favor, and elevation to a new relationship. Those same attributes of forgiveness is how God has dealt with us. We had an offense. We broke his law. He gave us compassion. We had someone to intercede for us. We had a substitutionary atonement through Jesus Christ. And now we're restored in favor to God. And we're on a new plain relationship with God. We are his sons and daughters, no longer slaves to sin. All of that is in this one little letter, laying down the principles of forgiveness. And so did Paul live up to what he wrote in Colossians? Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also must you do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. He sure did. This epistle shows the deep personal and practical concern for a social outcast, Onesimus, reminding us of how Jesus dealt with the outcast all through the Gospels. Here we have high levels of camaraderie and trust among the members of God's church. Christ had died for slave and free. And this is why Paul could later write in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Christ Jesus. Now let's take this to a personal level. Onesimus means useful or profitable. Ask yourself if you have become useful or profitable to Christ. Useful and profitable to your pastor, to your congregation, since you became a Christian. And then take a next step. Are we profitable to those who employ us to work? How well do we serve them? So it seems that every aspect of divine forgiveness of sin is duplicated in the forgiveness which Paul sought for Onesimus. He called upon these two beloved friends, both brothers in the faith, to build a redeemed relationship. How well are we responding to the same request concerning people with whom we're out of balance? Can we forgive? Will we forgive? This book is a practical illustration of what Jesus taught us to pray each day and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.